Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCall with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today uh, is uh, Saurabh Sharma, who is the president of a new organization, American Moment. So uh, welcome back to the program. You've been here before when you were a uh, uh, you were the lowly chairman of the Young Conservatives of Texas, and now you're you've moved all the all the way up to be the president of American Moment. Um, so, so welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be back on. Uh, still love YCT. Still think they're fantastic. But uh, when I was wrapping up my time with them, I decided I was a glutton for punishment and wanted to stay involved in politics. And so I decided to move to, uh, you know, uh, Washington D.C. as as all sane people do. Right, right. That's right. Yes, like a moth to the flame, um, like sludge to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, okay, so. Tell us a little bit about this new organization, American Moment. What is it? There's a bunch of American. I've noticed there's a there's a bunch of new American things. There's the American Mind. There's American Compass. There's American Purpose. American Affairs. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other ones. American Airlines. That's been around for a while. I don't think that's associated with any of this stuff. But what what is American Moment? Yeah, I mean, we really struggled on the name. You know, we were thinking Belarusian moment, we were thinking Australian moment, but uh, eventually we settled on American. It just felt like it was the the right choice given the the country that we were operating in. Um, yeah, so so American Moments, an organization that that uh, we just launched here uh, on February twenty fourth, um, but uh, been working on since April of last year, and and it was really centered around something that that I recognized and and a lot of people have recognized as a central problem that faced the right especially the more, you know, realignment, nationalist friendly right when it came time to actually govern under President Trump. Basically, there is not the the clearing house of people, uh whether it's policymakers, operational people, uh you know, just uh, the, the the various cogs in the machine, hence our logo that you need in order to steer the ship of state effectively. That has downstream consequences for obviously how a presidential administration is able to operate. But it also has consequences for the quality of the work product coming out of Capitol Hill. It has consequences for the public policy organizations that have a lot of influence in D.C. And so what I wanted to do was to take a and, and my co-founders, Nick Solheim and Jake Mercier as well, wanted to do was to take a little bit of a unique approach when it came to the question of young people. Um, we're not really trying to create a mass movement. We're not even having campus chapters of, of young people. But what I am interested in doing is taking a specific cadre of people who share our instincts on what the future of the right and the conservative movement needs to look like and, and identifying them, educating them, and then credentialing them to do these staffing roles, uh, whether it's on Capitol Hill in public policy organizations or in a future presidential administration. Uh, so, you know, creating in, in many ways an, an elite cadre that are going to be movers and shakers, as it were, in this space. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, something that's been remarked upon is the lack of kind of uh, people that can fill the different government roles. I think it's it's sort of been a problem in Republican administration generally 
but certainly more of a problem for uh, the Trump administration because, you know, uh, he couldn't even, in, in some cases, he couldn't rely even on the standard Republican bench, right? Because uh, he differed from uh, what, a, you know, a lot of those people thought on, on some key issues. But your, your instinct here is exactly right. In fact, I just pulled it up in front of me. Uh, I had Ed Martin uh, over at uh, Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle send this to me, but the Phyllis Schlafly report from November of 1980, uh, in which she spends three pages going into how uh, you know Eisenhower really screwed up the personnel question. And so Reagan has to really pay close attention to these 3,000 federal jobs he's going to be able to fill and everything. I mean, th- this has been a meme afoot on the right for a long time in various capacities. Um, so you're, you're right that, that this is a broader problem the right has faced for a long time. Yeah. And uh, why do you think that is? Is it just, you know, because in, in olden times, uh, I think one of the theories was, well, you know, conservatives uh, don't really believe that a lot of these agencies should exist. They're small government people. And so obviously, you know, it's it's going to be difficult to find people who can staff the EPA or the Department of Commerce or whatever, if you don't think there should be a Department of Commerce, um, if you you know remember that you that you don't want to get rid of it, but that doesn't. I mean, uh, Trump at least he didn't. You know, I, I guess there's a question now of well, how much are conservatives or Republicans still committed to that particular small government vision? uh, these days. Um, but it does, that does not seem to have mattered. Right. Uh, you know, in fact, the, the issue seems to have been, the issue seems to have gotten kind of worse. What can be done to try and change that or turn that around? Yeah. The, the, the kind of theoretical framework that I think about this can go as follows in order to be effective in the federal bureaucracy or even in Congress, you need to have an independent motivation uh, to really, you know, care about what's being done and the work product that's coming out of it. And insofar as the entire conservative movement over the past 40 years has squarely dedicated its, its energy towards destroying or deconstructing large elements of the federal government, the sorts of people that are motivated by that are not likely to be the sorts of people that are interested in or independently motivated in developing institutional knowledge and expertise on steering these agencies or steering these these positions. Uh, you know, th- to, to give a concrete example, you know, someone who doesn't believe the EPA should exist isn't going to be really, really focused on developing institutional credibility and expertise on how the EPA can be used towards substantively conservative ends. Uh, or, or, or to take another example, the Department of Education or Department of Commerce or what have you. Again, you know, Republican presidential candidates have been, you know, yelling off the rooftops about how they want to abolish the Department of Education for decades now. Uh, they haven't done it. And some of what informs American Moments perspective is a fundamental pragmatism that says, okay, you know, we're not necessarily going to counter signal that per se, but let's let's at least hedge ourselves and build up the institutional capacity in case that these agencies are not really going away and in order to put cards on the table i really don't think they are i think 
I think the best we can hope is that the federal government will stay roughly the size and shape that it is right now, or well, roughly the size, the shape may change, uh, and that uh, for that a lot more would have to change at a cultural level uh, and in a world affairs level for that to change. So if conservatives and Republicans actually want to substantively advance the interests of their voters, they have uh, a moral obligation if, and a duty to adequately and competently steer these agencies in a way that substantively influences conservative ends. Yeah, uh, the government needs to start lifting and change its shape, you know, replace that fat with muscle, right? That's right. That's right. We, 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 we are not Gnostics here. We have learned to love the body as it were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let me talk. So let's back up a little bit and I want to get into, I sort of, you know, uh, you guys were attacked by national review, uh, or writers at national review. I should say, you also had some folks write some, uh, defense articles for you there. So like, obviously you, you kind of like, have uh, hit a nerve a little bit uh, with some other folks in the conservative world. I just, you know, I, I'm interested in that. Uh, and like, what, why is it? Cause you know, as you lay it out, this seems pretty unobjectionable, right? Uh, you should be able to have people ready to staff these agencies on the right of center side, uh, as long as they exist, which they almost certainly will for the foreseeable future. So like, you know why, why could any how could how could anybody get mad about that, right? Well, before he jumps in, which which folks at National Review? Because I want to judge Sarab based on his enemies. Who who was critiquing him? <laughs> well, I believe it was primarily Jack Butler. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if anyone else did. Anyone else attack you from there, Sarab? Uh, in the pages of National Review, Jack was the only person who wrote a piece about us attacking us. Uh, Mark Corian wrote a piece uh, defending us uh, soon after in response to Jack's piece, but that was the extent of the response out of National Review. Yeah, so a little, uh, a little Gen Z on Gen Z violence. Right? <laughs> I actually believe Jack is technically a millennial, but um, yeah. So I, I, I guess. You know, broadly speaking, you know, I, I don't really bear any ill will towards Jack. I actually have listened to his podcast and Jonah Goldberg's podcast for a long time. And well, I, I will say like I bear this ill will against Jack Butler is that we uh, this was admittedly a while ago. We tried to get him on the show to discuss conspiracy theories and he would not come on. Right. So he has made an eternal enemy of me <laughs> because well, you, uh, Sarab, who has now been on the show twice. He has been on the show zero times despite being asked. So go go ahead. Well, that is that is his loss. I firmly believe that. But um, yeah, the, the criticisms against us, I think, come under two uh, categories. One, there are people who take umbrage with the ideological valence with which we approach this stuff. Uh, we aren't we aren't trying to do staffing for staffing's sake. Uh, we are doing it because we think it substantively advances an end that we have, which is completing the reorientation of the Republican Party and the conservative movement in the direction that that we believe it needs to go, being more affirmatively uh, protective of strong families, uh, the sovereign nation, uh, thinking critically about our trade regime, about uh, our, our foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the people who are our ideological enemies on that project obviously will not like what we are doing. Uh, there were a lot of people from the Cato Institute that used that article as an excuse to to bash us. So, so there was that angle to it. Um, 
then there is the the other angle to it, which is the the mechanical objection to what we're doing um, and how it interfaces with our ideological valence. So like one, uh, a, a fairly silly attack that was levied against us, which is, oh, you, you can't be populists. You had a, a party. Put aside whether or not I identify with the term populist. I actually don't. Um, that's, that's just an extraordinarily vapid uh, approach to politics. You know, every society across time has had elites. Uh, uh, yeah, that is not uh, going so, away. Uh, could you maybe spell that out a little bit? Uh, see, I, I, you mean not political party, but like uh, a cocktail party, I guess? You, you know. Yes, we had a launch party in Washington, D.C. for American Moment. There were about you know 100 people there. No one got COVID, which was very exciting. And and apparently, you know, Jack had had someone on the inside that that, and I have a sense of who this is, um, that that was telling him about it. Um, and, and the criticism was, oh, you know, uh, you can't, you claim to be populist, but you're having a, a cocktail party, and it's like, look, man, I, I'm very forthright about this. I don't think that the problem with you know the Georgetown cocktail party meme is that there are cocktail parties happening in Georgetown. My issue is that the people. Uh, and the ideas that undergird those uh, are fundamentally unsuited towards serving the nation well at this point in time. Um, and I actually think it's in some ways a very hollow populism to to just bash the idea that there is a such thing as an elite culture. Again, just like every society has elites, every society will have an elite culture that forms around those elites. And what I'm interested in is American society having a good, patriotic, noble elite. Uh, and political staffers uh, in part form that. Um, one of the other criticisms I've gotten uh, from within DC is people who who take umbrage, who may even be sympathetic with our ideological project, but the idea that you're creating elites, they're like, we're against e- elite, elitism. And, and, and I always say, but I'm not against, I, I am also against elitism. I'm against, uh, but I'm not against the idea of elites. And, and, and I think that there is a there is a, a fear of responsibility that bakes into some of this. You know, uh, a staff assistant on Capitol Hill probably doesn't feel like they are an elite. You know, they're getting coffee most of the time for their member or they're, you know, giving tours or whatever. It is my contention that they are, in fact, uh, elites, um, both in terms of the role they play at that given time. I mean, they probably have more face time with the people who govern our country than 99.99% of that politician's own constituents. That has inherent value and power built into it. But also the very nature of the career track that they're on will mean that they are going to have more and more influence over time. And so uh, I think that very often they get afraid at what it implies for how they have to posture themselves in the work that they do, how seriously they have to take their own lives that, that I am accusing them of being elites because there's responsibility that comes with that. Um, that is something that I'm going to continue to beat into the heads of everyone who will listen uh, for time and memorial because I think that we do have to, uh, as people who, uh, including you guys, have uh, more influence on politics than the vast majority of people in this country, um, have to have a sense of, of responsibility that, that orients around that. Um, so, yeah, the, the, those are sort of the, the two angles is the, the sort of mechanical of what we're doing and then the ideological of what we believe that most of the attacks have centered on. If you just indicated that you think that we should have a sense of responsibility, I really resent that. <laughs> you and a lot of other people apparently <laughs> um let me ask well so uh, first i will say i do think it is important uh for people who are in dc 
to get out of DC uh, periodically. Um, just, you know, because there is even, even folks who are, uh, very much ideologically opposed to the general atmosphere of DC, it's easy to kind of, uh, there's like a distortion field there. I feel like sometimes, even when I'm there that, you know, uh, just like the assumption of what the country is like is uh, maybe 15 degrees off of what it really is. Um, so I will say that, but. Let's talk about the uh, ideological realignment or whatever. So what is it, you know, how is it that you see uh, this realignment? What do you think was kind of, you know, why do we need a change? Uh, What do you see the like key differences between um, where the conservative movement of the Republican party has been and where you think it needs to reorient towards, uh, talk a little bit about all of that. Sure. So as a orienting, uh, framework to think about this, my politics is, is very much oriented around what values I believe, uh, are essential to a healthy civilization. You know what? What first things to use uh, a, a turn of phrase that a magazine has has made its banner, um, and and then subsequently, what is under attack amongst those things? What what is threatened in this point in time? And to me, the role of the conservative or the person of the right is to is to meet the challenges facing those core civilizational building blocks in the time they find themselves in with whatever policy will work. Um, so uh, right now, I see three civilizational crises facing the American nation. Uh, the first is the complete dissolution of the family, cratering marriage and fertility rates and family formation rates. That is a civilizational fire uh, that will destroy any nation that does not contend with it as aggressively as humanly possible. The second is the complete dissolution of any sense of national solidarity or even nationhood in the country. Um, that uh, can broadly touch on issues of culture. You know, you look at the the rise of, of, of left-wing racial ideology in the form of critical race theory and, and other things. Um, it also can touch on questions of our immigration regime, whether we are as a nation even capable of assimilating new immigrants right now into a cohesive polity. And then the last is, um, you know, the the recognition that on the global stage now there is an alternative regime that I think operates much more seriously than ours does at this point in time, and that's the Chinese. Um, I'm not a proponent of going to war with China. I think a lot of the China hawkery on the right these days is actually deeply pernicious uh, and is really a neocon trope to keep the Raytheon dollars flowing as opposed to actually substantively addressing the issues with our uh, relationship with China. But but China presents a genuinely alternative regime the way that the USSR never could uh, as far as a method of, of governance and organization that I think is truly dystopian. But if the American regime does not get its act together, it will be supplanted uh, by the Chinese. And so those are sort of the three crises that I see facing the country right now. And to me, the the policy toolkit that the right had for the past 40 years is, is not really well suited, or rather the, the guardrails or the third rails um, that the right had set up for the past uh, 40 years are, are not really well suited 
to this moment. Um, you know, whether it's the idea that, you know, low tax, you know, cutting taxes should be the first order priority for the right at, at all times, uh, that, that aggressive deregulation, that the, that the reduction of state capacity more broadly should be priority 1A. I just firmly disagree with that. Um, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll kind of uh, leave it, le, let you take it from here. But, you know, I, I just think that there is a there's a whole set of policy tools that the right has leaned on for a long time that aren't really useful. You, you can't tax cut yourself out of uh, a fertility crisis. And I think that there needs to be a new set of priorities that are brought to bear in order to meet those challenges head on. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting. I remember uh, a while back a discussion among a group of right of you know conservative people here conservative policy people here in Austin and someone was talking about the homelessness situation the homelessness problem and asked you know well what like what is the conservative response to homelessness you know what like what can be done? And, uh, you know, uh, someone else responded, well, the first thing is to cut taxes. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not, I'm not against cutting taxes, but, uh, I would have to say that the direct relationship between, you know, further tax cuts and, uh, solving the homelessness problem was not apparent to me. Uh, and it seems like you monster, <laughs> it seems like, you know, maybe a kind of like a little bit of a narrow perspective. If that's all, you know, if that's all you got, uh, on whatever the issue is, I just, you know, just cut taxes and, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe lob some cruise missiles at it if it's another, another <laughs> country. Um, yeah. Is, isn't the real conservative response to homelessness to, to build more workhouses? Uh, well, so that's a good question. I, I am definitely, and, and I'll let Sarab answer, uh, you know, I'm definitely in favor of building more houses, but. Oh, I, no, I said but, workhouses. I'm, I'm going Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, workhouses, workhouses. Oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't know. Sarab, do you have a paleo on workhouses? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I won't, I, I won't quite go that far, but, but I will say, you know, homelessness, you know, I, I think that one of the, one of the things that very much permeates a lot of, uh, my political, uh, worldview is being very protective of civilization and, and civilization looks like different things at different levels of organization. It could look like a nation, but it could also look like a community. Um, and having experienced the degradation of Austin over five years of living there, I think it's very important to be a little bit hard nosed about some of these things like vagrancy, which is, I think, a more illustrative term than, than homelessness, um, or, or rather a more specific term to describe the public manifestation of what a lot of people think about when they think of homelessness, um, is, is very much like contagion. It breeds more of itself. And, and so a, a soft headed policy towards it can often, uh, you know, even seem like the, you know, if you're more religiously oriented, the, the, the conservative way of approaching it. But, but I think it's, ex it's extremely important to be protective of, you know, law and order and, and being serious about homelessness uh, and vagrancy is, is something that I am often, you know, yelling about, uh, especially having watched what happened to Austin happen over the last couple of years. 
Yeah, let me. So let me ask you about the first of what you call the civilizational challenges, uh, having to do with uh, family formation. And I was looking the other day at um, some charts about you know, like average age of marriage and things like that. And it was actually kind of shocking to me the number of people who were approaching age 40 who had never been married, right? Uh, and, you know, particularly, I, I guess if you're, if you're uh, a dude, you know, maybe you have some more options there. But, you know, if you're, if you're a woman and you're approaching 40, never been married, you don't have any kids, like, yeah, I think it's it it's that chart I, I remember seeing it too. It, it basically showed that something like 40% of of women will never be married. Like right. yeah. And, yeah. yeah, so yeah. some of that was projection, but I mean that's, you know, so like that's that's pretty shocking and you've definitely seen a big increase, you know, I think uh I think the percentage of people in their 20s who still live with their parents is at uh, all-time high. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of indicators like that. Uh, simultaneously, perhaps, uh, not unrelatedly, you've also seen a big explosion in mental illness among younger people. So, you know, that I, that, those seem like uh, very serious problems and ones that, you know, uh, perhaps we have only begun to see the ultimate consequences and manifestations of, but, uh, you know, they also involve a lot of areas that you know people think or say are kind of like outside this traditional scope of government right uh you know there there was i think when elizabeth warren was running for president someone kind of half jokingly tweeted at her that you know uh she should help her find a a boyfriend or a husband or something and elizabeth warren is like yes i have a plan for that um, but you know, like it, that's, that's, that's a little silly, but like, you know, what, like, can there be a plan for that? Is there some, something that can be done governmentally, uh, to deal with that issue? Or is it just a cultural thing that, you know, is not really amenable to, to policy solutions? Yeah. A st- state mandated boyfriend or girlfriend, um, that is the, the hot new, uh, you know, realignment policy proposal. No, not quite. Um, look. I am not, I'm very clear eyed about what the limitations of state power are. A distinction that, that is frequently made on the right, um, you know, specifically when, when trying to put up guardrails around what government can do is that, you know, government is downstream from culture or politics is downstream from culture. Um, and that all of these civilizational die markers that we're looking at are really downstream of cultural consequences. Um, what I what I urge conservatives to think critically about is that it's not it's not a chain. It's it's not one causes the other causes the other. It's 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 more like convection currents in a pond, uh, and that the law and our polity influence culture and vice versa. I think the best example of this is gay marriage. Gay marriage failed in every state where it was put up for a ballot referendum for years, um, for like a decade and a half. And then Obergefell happened. And then suddenly you saw this, this hockey stick like jump. Um, and it had been, you know, support for gay marriage had been increasing over time, but you saw this hockey stick like jump because 
what had happened was was that you know uh, the, the people in the black robes who, who people look up to as these authorities said well this is good now the law was a teacher in that sense um and you see that across all sorts of different domains of policy and so what i'm not saying is that by implementing a more pro-family marriage policy or child care policy or uh you know expanding the child tax credit or creating a child allowance or what have you that it will immediately make everyone have more children but what i do think it indicates is is priorities what does our civilization prioritize um and that has downstream effects on culture that i think cannot be understated um you know what one of the great examples of violence that i think the government has done to the american people over the last 50 years or so has been the official nutrition guidelines that come out of the federal government um you know basically sometime around the 1980s or 90s there was this decision that you know fat was bad and carbs were good and and everything was low fat and instead it became high sugar and obesity rates have spiked since then they were already going up before but even more precipitously I think there's a very interesting question to be had that if we change that federal guidance to 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 be more consonant with the reality of where the science is on nutrition, uh, you know, if we did away with the idea that you know having five servings of pasta every day is essential to living a balanced diet or whatever, um, that that we could seriously improve um, you know the health of Americans, and that's just a particular example. Uh, another heuristic that I like to use about what this this sort of mindset can look like. Um, during one of the COVID stimulus negotiations, Marco Rubio proposed an alternative structure for the stimulus checks. You know, the original one was twelve hundred for every adult and five hundred for every dependent. And so, if you do the math on that, a single person gets twelve hundred per person. Uh, a married couple gets twelve hundred per person. A married couple with one kid, oh, suddenly your average has gone down to something like you know nine hundred per person. If you have five kids, your average is down much closer to like 600. Um, Marco Rubio's proposal was 1,000 per person, whether they're dependent or not. That is a, a small but, but I think illustrative example of how policy can look uh, and feel much more conducive to family formation, to big families, um, than it currently does. Uh, in a way that I think is is fairly common sense and not doesn't really offend uh, anyone, but I think the most ideological people uh, when it comes to how policy should be constructed. Did you did you consider what tax advantages there were when you were having children at the time you had the children? Me, <laughs> yeah, but that, well, actually, sarcastic. you know, it, uh, <laughs> you know that is interesting because uh, uh, my wife actually does uh, consider that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, she even, when we were getting married, she asked me to check to see, uh, how big of a marriage penalty we would face <laughs> taxes. And if it was too big, she was going to ask the priest if he could just give us a church wedding and not legally marry us. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know how typical, uh, you know, my wife is on that score, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's at least one person for whom that sort of thing does enter into the thinking. <laughs> but look, I, I, I think that the way this looks is not, it's not as mercenary as, and I think Doug was at least partially kidding, but it's not as mercenary as that. But, but what I think it does look like 
is for, you know, a young couple who, you know, maybe are, are living together, uh, you know, unmarried, you know, if, there, if there's affirmative tax benefits for them to enter a contractual marriage, uh, you know, forget covenantal, that's, that's a, that's a cultural question, I think. Um, and then if when they're making an assessment based on the sum total of their finances, whether it's their student loans, uh, whether it's how much money they make, uh, or what have you, if it seems like there is genuine help available uh, for them in, in terms of a child tax credit or something like that, um, they're much more likely to have kids. It's just, I, I think it's, a, it just makes sense at a certain level. And, and, and the lowest hanging fruit in all of American politics is the question of forget wanting to make people have more kids. Right now, I think there's something like a delta. Um, if, if you ask Americans how many kids they want to have, it's about 2.5. How many do they actually have? They have about 1.7. What's causing that delta? Because that right there is a difference between a growing native population and one that's shrinking. And so if we just went at least part of the way in meeting the gap between desired fertility and, and observed fertility, we'd get a lot of the way there. Forget, you know, putting in place truly wacky proposals that'll get people to have seven kids or whatever. That gets us a lot of the way there in and of itself. Yeah, I think we call that the the Tim Carney plan, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So so here's a, here's a slightly more serious question, a little bit more probing, actually. Um, if if your diagnosis is that the great problems of the, of the country are things like the collapse of the family and even... Uh, some sense of national, you know, a, a, you know, a collapse of a national identity. These are, and I'm not saying that there's no policy behind those, but as you were deciding to, to go into this venture, did you ponder other avenues like ministry? Is there, you know, some of these things seem to be, could be handled by private institutions. They could be handled by personal decisions and a, a and moral conviction. Did you ponder that? Is that a is is that appealing at all to try to handle that as more of a evangelizing type of approach? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think to a certain degree, to the extent that I can be a moral witness in my private life for behaviors that I think my peers should be emulating, I try to do that. In terms of the decision on how I could best help the cause in which I believed, uh, yeah, there, there, there theoretically was a gamut of things that I could have done. You know, with my prior experience in YCT and, and some of the other skills that I had brought to bear, I, I very much, I, I, I kind of did it in reverse order. What actually precipitated the idea for this organization was a piece that J.D. Vance, who now sits on our board, wrote called End the Globalization Gravy Train. And it talked about all sorts of structural problems in the conservative movement, uh, including this personnel problem and how broken the pipeline for personnel is. And I sort of looked at that and I said, huh, almost anyone with the wherewithal to recognize that's a problem that needs to be solved is either too busy or too old to solve it themselves. Almost anyone who's young enough to do it does not have the uh, experience, credibility, wherewithal, network, or force of will to get something off the ground themselves. But I might. And so in a very missional sense, I thought it was my responsibility to do so because I, I, I knew that it needed to exist 
but I didn't see anyone else with the particular assemblage of traits that I thought was necessary in order to make it exist. And so I decided, fine, I, I'll, I'll drop out of my law school deposits um, and uh, I'll do that. And, and that's what ended up happening. So it, it, it was less sort of a priori being like, how can I help the world? And more like I saw a need and just thought that, okay, I'll, you know, very much like, you know, Thanos in, in, in the Marvel movies, I'll, fine, I'll do it myself, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I, you know, we started Lone Star a few years ago and every once in a while I'll reflect on it and think to myself, you know, my dad was a preacher. Maybe I should have just gone into the family business because, you know, there's only so much you can do to really improve people's lives through policy. And and uh, at, a, at a certain level, you know, you start to ask yourself, really, is it, it at the end of the day? People just need Jesus, and so I, I think I think when you, when you when you come to that point, let's have you back on the show and we'll talk about that again. <laughs> good. Yeah, whenever whenever I have my quarter life crisis, I'll be sure to give you guys a ring. Uh, let's uh, not that I not that I uh, don't want to talk about Jesus, but let's talk about uh, something very different, which is China. Um. Because you mentioned that as kind of the third of your uh, civilizational uh, challenges or whatever it is. So, you know, we have like China, it seems like uh, it was only it was a couple of years ago. No one really cared about China. And now China seems to have be involved in all sorts of different issues, not only foreign policy issues trade issues, but it's even, it's, you know, it seeps into, you know, uh, domestic issues like uh, freedom of freedom of speech issues, uh, things with like the NBA or other businesses or Hollywood uh, censorship and movies. And then also, you know, there, there was, uh, uh, there's been a lot of media talk recently about, uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans, and that's gotten tied up with like, uh, you know, criticism of, of China. Is you know, people have blamed harsh criticism of of China for that rise. What? So, how do you see the issues with China, and what? What? Where would you like generally to see the right? go on that issue i know you said you didn't want war which is good uh but so where where do you see it going i think that our primary public policy response to china has to be a recognition of the variety of ways that american elites caused great damage to our country in mistakes that they made vis-a-vis our relationship with china um, and, and that's a very particular posture. Um, there, there's, there's a great piece that I highly recommend that everyone reads. Uh, we feature it on Amcanon on our website. It's by our friend Micah Metacroft. It's called China and Piety. And the line that I keep coming back to in that um, is, is, is just, it's stuck in my head. It's, it goes something like, America owes a strategic counter to China, not to Uyghurs and Hong Kongers, but to the American people. When it comes to the way that I approach public policy, I think that what American politicians and policymakers have to do 
has to has to be to orient all public policy questions in what is in the national interest. And what is in the national interest vis-a-vis the China question is questions of autarky, you know, uh, how how entangled are we uh, at a manufacturing, uh, both high and low end level with China and our inability to have, you know, domestic manufacturing capacity during times of crisis where that relationship to go south. Um, I think there's questions of cultural influence, you know, the Confucius institutes that dot the country. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it seems like Chinese corporations are now using uh, domestic um, American, uh, you know, political strife, you know, vis-a-vis things like Black Lives Matter and and, and critical race theory as a, as a cudgel to weaken the regime. Um, and, and I think it has to do with certain national security questions as well, vis-a-vis, you know, things like the hardware level exploits that are in so much of our silicon that 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 Chinese manufacturers have put, um, or or other things like that. Um, you know, one of the uh, one of the jokes that I tell about what my foreign policy is is something like, you know, I don't want my grandkids speaking Mandarin as a first language, but I don't want their parents dying in the South China Sea either. Uh, that that gets pretty close to it. Uh, I I want America to not be subsumed under Chinese imperial ambition or, or for America's sovereignty to be uh, damaged by uh, a rising China that has, you know, significantly taken over trade and international commerce. Uh, but I also want us to be very careful not to saber rattle and overstep in search of monsters to use a, a, a John Quincy Adams ism, uh, but by trying to, to cause regime change or, or some other, you know, poorly considered intervention along those lines uh, on the Chinese mainland or even in, in Taiwan or Hong Kong. All right. Well, uh, I think we will wrap it there. Sarab, thank you very much for joining us. And we will have you back uh, soon to talk about, uh, you know, uh, how you have uh, taken over the world with this new organization. I look forward to it. 